Hey everyone, it's Luke here. Welcome back to Michael and Us. Uh, on a recent episode, we talked about a Twitter thread of mine asking people to share their worst freelance experiences. Uh, I shared one of mine, but Will and I were both interested that so many of the people who replied seemed to come out of games journalism, and I was speculating in a very uninformed way about why this might be, uh, idly wondering if there were structural reasons that the freelance experience might be even worse in games journalism than it is elsewhere. Coming to my rescue, though, was friend of the show, Henry Gilbert of the Talking Simpsons podcast. Henry spoke to me about his experiences working in gaming journalism, experiences both he and his co-host of Talking Simpsons, Bob Mackey, I understand had before they uh, started their incredibly successful Patreon, which you should check out if you're not following them already. Um, but we wanted to bring Henry and Bob on to talk about gaming in general, which is something we haven't really touched on on the show, but especially games journalism and the experiences uh, that they themselves had in freelancing. So we're flying fast and loose this week. It's going to be just a kind of free-flowing discussion, and we're going to see where it takes us. Uh, so first of all, welcome, Henry and Bob. Thanks for coming back to Michael and us. Hey, thanks for having us. Hey, it's a pleasure to be here. I thought we'd begin by just kind of running through your own career trajectories. You know, what was your experience, you know, freelancing, writing in, in games journalism? What is the experience just generally like. And for those who don't know, maybe you could tell us a bit about what games journalism is, because I'm sure not all of our listeners are kind of in the know about it. It's something that I only really became aware of recently as kind of a large field that a lot of people were engaged in. So what's what's your background in this? And uh, what exactly is games journalism? What, what kind of form does it take? Oh, man. Oh, I guess uh, in a nutshell, it's basically just uh, media coverage of games, and that could extend to uh, critical reviews of the game in question, uh, previews of games that are coming out, interviews with developers, retrospectives, um, features about certain aspects of games. Uh, it's very, very broad, but it's mainly cultural commentary about games and critical commentary about games. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you take out what sports is about, like, it's, it's kind of, well, it's like sports journalism meets film journalism i think some people cover it from a narrative standpoint but other people cover it from a a game you play and dissecting like how it is as a game like i it it's a complicated uh, structure that started out as like a bunch of things that were basically advertisements in the 90s that then went yeah. online <laughs> and it grew and grew over time in depth of writing and, and better writers came up in it uh, but it still kind of has the, you know, roots in advertorial so much. And and then on top of that, most of it's based in Silicon Valley, which is why, like me and Bob, we both moved to the Bay Area to work in the games press because mm -hmm. we we were attracted to it. Like me and Bob both came in and the like well i was 08 i think bob was maybe a little before that i i started freelancing for video game stuff in tw uh, 2007 but i didn't actually make it out here for a full-time job until 2011 yeah and so we came to it just as like we were nerdy kids who loved playing video games and had a ton of knowledge about it and you know we're english majors that well <laughs> i i am an english major dropout bob is a i have a master's yes, degree yeah. but <laughs> you alluded to the fact that games journalism started as basically an extension of advertising i assume you're thinking of like magazines like nintendo power or egm that sort of thing oh yeah nintendo power especially because it was run by the company who wants to sell you the games but mm -hmm. a lot of the other magazines 
uh, they were a bit better, but still it was companies saying, hey, uh, we'll send you our games early if you want to cover them. And, you know, maybe it's in your best interest to give it a good review. Like, mm. it's kind of the handshake deals uh, of that era. By the time it, you started, how, I guess, monolithic was the gaming press? Because when I was a kid, it seemed like there were like five magazines and that was it. When you started, were you writing for websites that had the same sort of tight relationship with the game companies? I was lucky enough that uh, at my website I worked at when I moved out here, oneup.com, there was a very church and state relationship between the ad part of the website and the editorial part of the website. A lot of sites weren't that lucky. A lot of sites would have a lot of pushback with ads, people saying, you gave this game a low review. This was an exclusive. This is a problem. Like I, There are so many stories on the record about that, but luckily I was shielded from it, which is why that website no longer exists. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Now, I, you'd, you'd hear a lot more about soft pressure, you know, of like, oh, this company this pr guy emailed me a thing and uh and you guys you know keep that in mind it's more like you just know i i will say we we have lots of friends in the games press me and bob left it and they work very hard i agree to keep those things separate like we have lots of friends so i don't ever i don't want this to sound like i'm throwing them all under the bus but but as a giant business that has to work with giant businesses the online media companies do feel you feel way above the pay grade of your boss is somebody saying, Hey, this would go easier if you had somebody who really liked this instead of somebody who didn't like this. That's very true. Yeah. I, I had a tweet thread in the past month or so that a lot of people were responding to. And it was me saying, uh, it's very easy to blame. Oh, those darn gamers again, those gamers are at it once again, yelling at the press, but it's kind of like the triforce of terror for people in the games press, because on every side, you have somebody putting pressure on you. It's the gamers who want positive reviews. It is your managers who know more positive writing will be better for the audience and for relationships with publishers and it's the publishers who always want you to be positive so there's like a three-sided amount of pressure on any writer which is why i respect them so much and i totally know what it's like to be in that position so th this is really interesting to me to hear about uh magazines like nintendo power because when i was a i don't know seven-year-old or whatever and i wanted a nintendo 64 uh more than anything else in the entire world like i think one or two times when i saw a physical copy of nintendo power i approached it with like an almost religious reverence like i couldn't oh, yeah. believe it it was it was like an exotic item that you'd see in like an airport or something i don't know if it was available where you know where i lived uh, i certainly never uh, never saw it anywhere but i had no idea that essentially it was like uh, you know, a kind of a trade publication, you know, like advertorial, as you guys were saying. And it reminds me of the same dynamic that I think now exists and has existed for a long time in two of my other areas of interest, fitness and guitar. Um, because <laughs> when I was a teenager, I used to buy a lot of guitar magazines. And I don't think I realized at the time, the ex like, I don't really get them anymore. And one of the reasons for that is that they are kind of, a lot of them anyway, unless they're very niche, are just sort of trade publications like they're kind of creatures of you know martin and co and gibson and the big guitar companies and the same thing is true with uh you know magazines you see at the grocery store with incredibly jacked guys on them like those are often creatures of kind of protein powder companies supplement companies things like that and so it sounds like across all kinds of uh you know journalism and cultural writing this uh this dynamic persists cards on the table I am, uh, I guess, at best, a casual gamer. I'm somebody who goes through, you know, very intense bursts of playing a game uh, for a while, you know, usually a month or two, and then I won't 
game at all for for months and months at a time game i've been playing recently which will and i have discussed in, on uh, a couple of recent episodes is sekiro shadows die twice and because this game is so difficult like famously <laughs> difficult i found myself going online to watch videos and you know uh, of people i don't know it's it's pretty embarrassing to admit but you know people teaching you different sword techniques and you know how you manage a particular boss and stuff obviously stuff that's totally normal if you're super into games but for me it was kind of new and exotic territory and this has made me aware of this huge universe this huge ecosystem of people doing both kind of amateur and professional commentary on games either let's play videos or i don't know there's a whole there's a whole mm -hmm. bunch of different variations what exactly were the two of you doing when you worked in freelance writing what was kind of what were your kind of beats oh it was really just an extension of all of the things i was torturing my grad school and uh professors and undergrad with which was just like you know critical and cultural theories about games and a uh, little i guess more on the creative side because i was mainly into features and things like that and I didn't start doing reviews and more traditional coverage until I actually got into the industry full-time but a lot of my a lot of my work before that was uh, writing features yeah for me it was on on the freelance side as I was trying to get a uh, space in there it was uh, for me playing a lot of hardcore games or knowledge about these more niche genres that like there was no way I was gonna get to review grand theft auto or a call of duty because there's guys who have worked at that website for a decade that they work there too and they're like no i'm the reviewer for that duh so nobody wants to review say a new dynasty warriors game or or a new mm -hmm. rpg that takes 100 hours to play oh, so yeah. i'm able to say well i'll do that i'll do that for 200 dollars. yeah give it to me i yeah. have 63 hours totally <laughs> yeah <laughs> If you don't mind me asking, to what extent were you able to support yourself off games journalism? Absolutely uh, not at not all. Not very no, well. <laughs> I, I, in freelance, not at all. Like, yeah. yeah. I mean, it was extra. Like, I, okay, well, so the way I finally got a full time job in the games press and the, it, it was through what I think basically is a, like a, a legal thing, which was at the company I worked at, they hired me as an intern. I was not in school. This was not for credit, but they're just like, if you come in two days a week and basically work for free, we'll see if you're good enough to hire for a full-time <laughs> job. So I did that for six months with occasional freelance, like every few weeks I might get to review something, but otherwise I did that two days a week while doing a five day a week video store job at the same time that supported me. So, and I also am like, I am lucky enough to come from a uh, background where I had, you know, family that I could count on that a couple times I could say, Hey, I could use the help with money and rent this month. But so pretty much that was how I would couldn't really support myself until i became a full-timer and even then that like i can't believe the wage i took there but it was my first real job yeah. so you know it was like uh 25k i think oh my like, god was, i didn't know it was that yeah, low I, but that for like a two years yeah, yeah geez yeah. i mean i was only able to live as a freelancer uh in the games press because i was living in one of the most economically devastated towns in america mm. where my rent was i believe like 152 dollars a month nice so yeah. like if i made a good month of freelancing in the games press it would be like four or five hundred 
bucks, and I felt like Uncle Pennybags walking down the <laughs> so street. So you, you you play like uh, you know a couple hundred hours of Call of Duty, you can pay your rent basically if you live in the like one of if you live in a place with extremely low rent because yeah. of the economy. If you live in like Youngstown, Ohio, like me, or Flint, Michigan, or any other city devastated by industry, uh, you could probably make it work. But yes. just don't do the hours to money ratio when you're thinking about how much you're working in a week. You'll be be very sad. That that is such an incredibly bleak image. So as as I'm understanding here, part of the lure of freelance gaming journalism is that, you know, hey, you're 18, 19, 20, 21, 25, whatever. You like games, you know, they're fun, they're a distraction, and you think, well, if a company sends me the new Dark Souls or something, like a week or two before it comes out, then I'll get to play it and I'll make 150 bucks. And you get the game for free because mm-hmm. games are expensive. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No. <laughs> but actually this, this whole thing, it sounds like is masking just a typical kind of precarious work environment, like the one that exists throughout the media and also, you know, so much of the workforce. Yeah, it's why the games press, like, you bear, you can't really make it past the age of 35, and if you do, you're really lucky. I mean, like, in the past couple of days, two of the most storied game critics just left the press just because they were uh, laid off or they knew it was coming sooner or later. Mm. And uh, I knew that I couldn't last. Like, I purposely left at 35 because I hit a dead end. There was no room for improvement, and frankly, the company didn't want to give me any creative power, so I just mm. escaped. But it's because of that that there's a lot of people in the press that are working very hard, but when everyone taps out at 35 the critical pool is very very shallow you'll never get like a roger ebert of the press because by the system and how it's designed they can't last in that system yeah no that was a actually that was like a really loaded phrase at one time yes and i hate it like 13 years ago uh no uh, 14 15 the creator of the gears of war series like he was like where's the roger ebert of the games press and we were like nobody stays long enough to do that nobody gets paid with Roger Ebert get, got paid. If there's any great writer, they would leave out of just pure, just your own self-respect. You eventually build up over time. Was it ever possible to have a longish or a more sustainable career in, in the games press? Because I assume that like all other forms of media, it's become more dispersed and harder to sustain a career uh, with the internet. When I got in in 2011 full time, it took me so long to get in full time. And once I did, it felt like that's when the door just slammed shut behind almost everybody. Because at that point, all the magazines were shutting down, websites were folding, my website was folding. It was difficult 10 years ago, and I can't imagine how difficult it is now especially during the quarantine situation i have no idea how terrible ad sales are now i don't know what's going on but i just can't imagine just the difficulty of making it work yeah when me and bob our generation we were uh the we got to see the end of the big money generation where you actually like my first boss i had several bosses that were like in their 40s they were dads with homes uh, like mortgages and kids and all that like they were able to make it work but over time those guys left but their jobs weren't filled by anybody like those jobs the the jobs that could pay that much went away they didn't exist anymore and as every publication slowly just closed and closed and closed that meant there was nowhere to become an editor-in-chief or a high-level role anymore like the, yeah. those spot, spots just disappeared and add on one thing to that uh, when Henry and I got in around the same time it was just as the age of like influencers and YouTubers were taking off mm-hmm. making 
making the press way less relevant and seeming less authentic than a guy in front of a wall of toys. There are so many YouTubers I love. We have them on our podcast and stuff, of course. But, uh, you know, by just their nature of who they are and, you know, the work they were doing, it, it made our the job of the press seem less essential. So one thing I want to probe a little more here is, you know, a dynamic that Will and I have talked about uh, on other episodes, you know, vis-a-vis, I think, political journalism mainly, which is the emergence of, of a kind of courtier culture where, you know, people uh, people who are doing the commentary uh, sometimes for out of opportunism and sometimes out of professional necessity or at least very strong institutional pressure feel like they need to maintain good relationships with in politics, you know, it's it's politicians and, and uh, you know, institutional power in gaming. I guess it would be the big companies, the studios, uh, the people who are making the games, uh, that kind of thing. I think this is a dynamic that's present in a lot of journalism. I think, you know, tech is another place where you see this a lot. That's how we get, you know, these credulous headlines about, you know, Elon Musk says reality is all a simulation or like that kind of thing. How does this play out in games journalism? And I mean, are there have people found kind of creative ways to get around it? Boy, you know, that's that's tough because definitely whenever I would read things about, you know, access journalism, uh, when they talk about it for like in Washington, D.C., I'd be like, yeah, that's that is so similar to what you have to. Well, also because you can't delegate anything and every job becomes your job. You just have to do everything, at least in me and Bob's experience in the games press. Like you have to email the PR yourself. You have to set up these appointments. You have to do all these things. And so you're you have and you're more powerful in your job the more contacts you have with the people who make the video games or really the press the pr people who work for the people who make the video games so yeah i mean access you try your best uh, uh, when i worked in that world you try your best to be like hey i'm just working with these people they're my friends but us uh they're not my friends but then you go to these events and it's like open bars and you're hanging out like how do you not you especially when you're getting paid shit like why don't you want to just eat all the free food and drink every free drink you can because it's the only fun you have (laughs) yeah like one of my first big trips in the games press was i was sent alone to some big uh, sony event and it was uh you know me being in these sort of situation for the first time and of course staying in a, a suite bigger than my apartment and i could just like i can run from one into the other and get winded and then just seeing like all the people who were sort of installed in the press immediately coming in like throwing their arms around the pr people sitting down eating steak drinking bourbon like getting the four-star treatment and i'm like is this is this what i'm in for is this what my life is going to be like what if i don't like a game and the pressure was on from there you know, it's funny when I do watch gaming related YouTube videos, which is something I've only, I guess, recently got into, you know, thinking about it, usually when I watch reviews from, you know, I don't know, the mainstay review companies, things like IGN, you know, they're not always like fully positive, but often the negative reviews, which are actually often the ones I kind of enjoy the most, those come from sort of independent, like independent uh, YouTubers. There's a guy called, uh, I think we talked about this on an old episode, but this guy called Joseph Anderson, who has a takedown of uh, the game No Man's Sky, which he played mm. for something like 50 hours. And I, for some, I've never played this game. I never will play this game. I had never heard of it. But for some reason, I find his takedown compelling enough that I've actually shown it to people. And I've watched it, I think, you know, more than twice. I don't know. Is that just kind of uh, anecdotal on my part that sort of more critical 
takes on games often come from independent sources because of these structural pressures you guys are talking about? I think if no one can tell on you to your boss or uh, if your platform is small enough where no one is immediately going to dox you for a bad review, then you're more likely to be a little more honest. And I think even if you're not aware of it, that pressure is implicit if you have a large platform. And my platform wasn't even that big, but I knew in some cases I, I would sort of lean towards the more positive because it would be, I would be like, uh, my week might be better if this got a four instead of a 3.5 so why not you know yeah, that yeah. sort of thing maybe i wasn't like processing it that way but once i landed on having to write the score maybe that's why i came to that point in my own decision making but yeah i think there's a lot of honesty coming out of big platforms but there is also a much bigger implicit pressure to be positive just because of all of the pressure from your audience publishers and your bosses to what extent has the internet been able to foster, I guess, a robust culture of confrontational games journalism, the way that we've started to see kind of a, a different kind of politics journalism, for instance? Well, boy, that is that is complicated because mm -hmm. I so on the positive side for me, I do think that there are some good writers who do like actually write a critical take on something especially uh there was a game that just came out the last of us part two and some of my favorite reviews of it that were actually critical they had no score on yeah. them. they were just like oh, i'm not going to put a score on this the score is everything like that that i think causes just all this pressure just having to be like well what is my score out of 10 uh but so one of my favorite things about like uh the independent games press is that like that video you were talking about luke there's lots of videos that uh essays that come out like months after a games comes comes out to have like a more interesting dissection of what the game is that really under a deadline of a week to finish a review while doing every other thing there's no way you can really you have you can only go so deep yeah. so yeah but oppositely on the independent side all that stuff we talked about that we got like schmoozed with and had to resist and be like yeah it's a free drink whatever if you're an independent dude who gets like flown to san francisco to see a new transformers video game you just have stars in your eyes like yeah you're, it's it's even it's even easier to get forced positivity on that kind of thing i think that we're lucky in that we we became independent after going through the press so we sort of understood like uh you know the morality of what we're supposed to do and you know how mm. not to be tempted but i feel like uh one of the bonuses of the independent press um i mean i do a, a video game a podcast called retronauts it's a classic gaming podcast and that's started at one up and we continued it after one up closed there's no way you'd be able to do a podcast like that now i mean we're going to be recording a podcast about batman arkham asylum a 2009 video game i spent about i don't know 20 hours of my time replaying it and taking notes no website would give me that time to talk about Never. an 11 year old game and i think the conversation that will come out will be uh very interesting and i think a few 10,000 people will listen to it but that is not worth anything to a game website why exactly is that why wouldn't a website be interested in in that? They just, I mean, uh, I want to hear Henry's input, but I think they they just have this addiction to the cycle. Like, there is maybe a three week window in which you can talk about something, and then maybe at the end of the year you could be like, "What well, were the best games of this year?" But mm -hmm. like, once that's over, the subject is closed, and there is no space to be part of, of any more discussion. And like Henry and I at our last uh, at our last gig, we couldn't even make like a general purpose podcast. Just like 
let, let us have a podcast. We have an audience. But even that was hard to pitch. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, well, for podcasts especially, we got to hear the word ROI quite a lot. Yeah. Like, if you say this podcast, if it gets really big, could earn you like $20,000. That, that That is a meaningless number to any executive we had a meeting with. But, uh, and yeah, like the cycle of it too, you just have... A game gets announced like a year in advance and everybody talks about it. It gets, uh, you know, you show some new stuff uh, over time and people talk about it more. And then the game finally comes out. You talk about it for basically four days. Mm -hmm. And then once the game is out and everybody's played it, then they think about next week's game. And you just, you never talk about the old thing. The, The only way we could really... I successfully pitched talking about old stuff was when I could say like, well, you know, this new Mario game is coming out. What if I talked about this old Mario game? That was kind of the only way I could get away with it when at my old job, just like uh, the new, the old in reference to the new, mm-hmm. you know, that's basically the only kind of uh, retrospectives you could do. Film journalism is much like that too, by the way. Uh, oh, wow. You can often write, you can write about old stuff as long as it's like the 20th anniversary. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, totally. I, I was going to say, I mean, as someone who's only just kind of dipped my toes into any of this stuff, I find the cycle you guys are talking about pretty exhausting because after, you know, doing some research about like, what's going to be my next big game, I settled on Sekiro. I started playing that. I was almost nervous to begin it because I could tell it was going to be a a big, you know, sinkhole for time and it was going to be a massive undertaking. So I started playing it. And what do I find as I'm, you know, looking at videos related to it? But there's a game that I think just came out today or is coming out this week. That is another samurai game, very similar kind of uh, combat style that's uh, set during the 13th century, during the Mongol invasion of Japan. And I don't know when I will ever have time to play this. I've probably given Sekiro, I, I don't even, I'm too embarrassed to speculate <laughs> on how, on the number of hours and I'm probably just like halfway through the game. Um, so this cycle you guys are talking about where there's just a window of two or three days, that sounds exhausting to me. I think I, I think the retro approach sounds a lot more serene. I personally, I'm still, at least to a casual gamer like me because I'm still catching up on you know, like Bob, you mentioned uh, the first in the Arkham series. I've casually thought about trying that series for years and I still haven't got around mm. to it. So I, I don't know, maybe I'll check out your podcast. Am, oh, I, am I imagining it, though, or isn't there kind of a robust market, at least on the Internet, for kind of like game nostalgia stuff? Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. definitely. Yeah. I mean, I make a, a partial living off of it, but I just feel like no big corporation is willing to sponsor anything but like an article here or there, maybe. Mm. And yeah. I th- and I think like I really bask in the stuff that Henry and I do in terms of what we're making. The content, for the most part, is evergreen. And when I was in the games press, it was really exhausting and demoralizing because it felt like because of that cycle, no matter what you did, no matter how good of a job you did or how hard you worked, every morning that slate was wiped clean. It was like, okay, what do you got for me today? That's old news. This is new times. And like E3, the E3 game Uh, conference, you never worked harder. Henry just visibly shuddered. You never worked harder. You maybe did like a hundred hour week that week. It was all like uh, rise and grind, that kind of culture. All the work you did at E3 was irrelevant maybe four days later, maybe Uh a week later. But you never worked harder in your life. And that was so exhausting and demoralizing. 
Well, I feel like this very much matches your experiences <laughs> in, you know, kind of film and culture writing. I mean, it sounds like very similar to some of the stories you've shared. Eerily so. Also, by the way, I once did a nine to five unpaid internship for like four months, um, which wow. uh, le leads me leads me to my next question. Since I guess most people can't afford to spend 60 hours playing a game for, a, you know, $150 for a blog post, is it fair to assume that most or many of the people in games journalism come from a certain amount of privilege? Oh, oh yes, absolutely. Yeah, I, I mean, I, yeah. sorry, go ahead. No, me, I mean, Bob and I have like, you know, middle class suburban backgrounds like I we're I probably a little more privileged than Bob, too. But yeah, I mean, when you get in the meetings, you're like, oh, but when we were there, you're like, it's all white dudes. Yeah. It's all people. Uh, honestly, lots of people from Chicago. Like it was a real Chicago group in our generation. I was going to echo what Henry said. And when I worked in the games press, everyone was either named Matt, Chris or Ryan. Yes. Yeah. Everybody, yeah. <laughs> there was like three Chris's no matter where you went or like four Ryan's. Yeah, there were there were more i met far more chris's than i did um women or a person who wasn't white but yeah like, you do yeah, get like I, a suburban white male perspective uh I, that is getting a lot better thankfully yes, there the last decade there's been a lot of work towards that yeah yeah, yeah. but there there weren't spaces like that when i started full-time definitely like i think uh so we worked at i worked at one up uh that was within the ign complex and i swear their editorial staff was maybe 90 2% male and white that changed a lot in 10 years thankfully but I was shocked at what I saw there and I was on like a 75% uh, white editorial team yeah, so yeah. we weren't much better well and, and also when you think of like the economic backgrounds of the people that were traditionally attracted to it like you for you to have played every video game or to have like a big video game knowledge to go into it uh, that profession like unless you were you know uh downloading roms you probably had parents that bought you a ton of video games so you just come from a certain many people came from a certain economic background and if you didn't you're really like fighting against the tide to try to keep up with that level of knowledge like i think now i i do think there's a lot more diversity and also different backgrounds in games press though hardly enough but yeah but especially when we came in like to even talk about that it would be it would feel kind of weird it's like well it's just uh, we're just guys whatever it's uh, i'm sure we're all the best people here <laughs> yeah it's a meritocracy you do that gamergate is a sensitive topic but can i ask why did that kind of anti-feminist backlash hit games journalism i mean Ooh. it's hit a lot of journalisms but why did it hit games journalism so disproportionately it's it's kind of strange i mean i feel like uh i i can't be the only one but i did i did see like the bubbles rising out of the gamergate swamp uh, years before when i would write about certain topics mm. and uh yeah i mean there's been so much written and so much said about this i don't know what i could say that would not be like trite but it does feel like um there are lots of uh, honest and true gamers gamers that are you know uh upstanding people but the hobby attracts a lot of uh, ne'er-do-wells a lot of social outcasts a lot of social mythics and it is a hobby designed around like this fictional empowerment of you and, as a person and isolation too isolation like, yeah. too and i will say like 
I love uh, my audience for everything I do, but uh, the audience who responds to our cartoons podcast is, I think, 20 times more positive and supportive than anything I've ever done in terms of uh, games writing or games podcasting. Yeah, and I mean, the Gamergate thing, I mean, fuck all of them. Like, yeah, they, fuck them. Yeah, just a, just a base statement on that. But, like, they they, they attacked friends of ours. They yeah. were shitty to, like, literally, like, uh, trying to hack their bank accounts kind of things even. like. But I, I think, you know, partially it comes from the sentiment of why is everything got to be so political now? And then on top of that, like, uh, by the mid-2010s, I think a lot more of us in the games press were becoming, as we got older, more politically aware than the generation before us was. And so we would talk about these things or we would listen to other people saying like, hey, you ever notice that in video games you like murder women a lot yeah. or you or everybody is a cop? Like, do you ever think about that stuff? And so... And, and on top of that, you are tired of writing the same fucking thing all the time. So if you're playing a new game where you're like a cop who murders homeless people, you want to write about like, it's kind of fucked up. I'm a cop yeah. murdering homeless people. Instead of like uh, good graphics, good particle, particle effects on that blood spraying out of that guy's head. <laughs> and and so that, yeah, so the people who complain about politics, but especially feminism, I mean, especially to like the, the a big turning point was like Anita Sarkeesian, but she was, uh, I think... The just at the forefront she's the most famous face of it but of just it's like even like you know surface level presentations of tropes in video games that are anti-women that was more conversation than some people wanted and then on top of that they the internet in general there's a lot of places you can get radicalized and they a lot of people fell into that and especially if people I saw it as a lot of those people, they thought, why don't I like these games as much as when I was a kid? Why do I like them less? And then yeah. they have a shitty asshole on some forum say like, well, you know, it's all because these feminists say games can't be cool anymore. They're ruining them. And then, and then they just, uh, and then they're t caught in the, uh, they're radicalized basically. Yeah. Yeah, I think it also around the time, like right before Gamergate, it was also the uh, the rise of like the alt-right YouTuber. Uh, like this is so complicated, but like sort of the atheist YouTube was transgressing into the Nazi far, far right YouTube. And I think a lot of the people who were like, I'm a independent libertarian gamer and I, I hate God <laughs> immediately fell for the Nazi trap. And we saw a lot of that kind of just bleed into uh, Gamergate and inform it. Right. So like the, the intellectual dork web. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I'm curious, guys, you know, we're talking about kind of the internal culture of gaming and we've talked about games journalism uh, as kind of a labor issue. But I'm curious, do you think the structure of games journalism or just uh, gaming culture uh, in general, does it have anything to do with this cultural schism that's opened up, if that makes sense? So hmm. the, the cultural schism, I think, you know, the popular understanding of it, and you, you've already touched on it, is one between, you know, ultra reactionary kind of self-consciously right wing, you know, anti-feminist gamers, people who for whom, you know, gaming is kind of part of their identities and kind of uh perhaps a more inclusively minded and perhaps sometimes uh, excessively woke, you know, other contingent uh, who also identify as gamers and for whom it's an identity. I mean, I guess, is that a, is that kind of an accurate depiction of the schism? And, and if it is, uh, what do you think the, I don't know, structural reasons are for that? I mean, I think a schism like that, it partially does come from 
in uh, this is just American games journalism because UK games press is a whole other conversation. But uh, for American games journalism, I know like most of them, uh, most writers like us were based in either, you know, the Bay Area or some in New York City. Like these were, you know, more liberal areas and especially in in San Francisco in the 2010s. It's a more liberal and, and woke conversations are happening there. And so I think that leads to just a general like uh, liberalizing of those groups. But then on top of that, you have the, you know, the regular, even the nicest folks uh, who say, like, I just don't want politics in this. Like, yeah. they just view them as apolitical. And even if you were to say to them, hey, this, but this game isn't apolitical. This game has a political position. Even then they're like, well, don't tell me about it. Like that, I think that is the most, like, innocent version of that schism. Uh, though, also, I do think as gamers, some gamers got older, they became more conservative while most of the writers in, in at major websites became more liberal. I think that's probably, probably a big part of hmm. it just to kind of close out the conversation i'm curious you know a, a big theme of our show obviously is you know the trajectory that many people uh, of our generation i think certainly both will and i in different ways took from i don't know a sort of liberalish politics we might have had uh when we first stepped in to see fahrenheit 9-11 in the <laughs> early 2000s and uh you know the, the more kind of uh, we took a trajectory from that to the more radical politics that i think a lot of us uh have today and that you know uh, so many people of our generation seem to share uh, what's you know interested me is uh you know when i've written about this trajectory from uh, my own experience is how many people ha who have completely different backgrounds, completely different professional experiences than me, even uh, who live outside of North America, have had a very, very similar trajectory or, or uh, evolution, if you will. And so I'm curious, you know, I guess the, the most straightforward way to ask this is, did your experiences working in games journalism contribute to any kind of radicalization in your politics? And if so, uh, how did how did that play out? Oh, God, a thousand percent. Uh, yeah. Because when I was hired, uh, initially hired to work out here, I was a real bait and switch where I was like, oh, I have a job. And it turns out, oh, no, I don't have a job. I have a contract. I'm a contractor. I'm not sure if you guys have this in Canada or anything, but uh, basically it was like, you're a freelancer, but you have to be here and you don't have uh, days off. You don't have uh, sick time, pay time off. If there's a holiday we get off, you don't get paid for that holiday. Uh, none of the benefits like, you know, maybe uh, people that actually work there will get their train fees, uh, their, their transit fees taken care of. If you're a contractor, you don't get that. So that really radicalized me, like being, uh, feeling, feeling like a second class citizen in that system and i still see today uh like on twitter uh someone at a big website uh, say like oh i've been a contractor at so-and-so for two years today it's my anniversary and i was like that should be a tragedy this should not be a celebration you should be hired and it is the biggest scam in these corporations this uh these contractor jobs where again you are not like oh i'm gonna work on this project and then leave no it is like you are a nine to fiver and games press is more like 10 to eighter yeah and you must be here here, you must show up but we don't treat you like an employee and that mm. super radicalized me as someone who was already drifting to the left someone who didn't vote for obama in 2012 that really informed a lot of my politics yeah 100 percent for me too like i 
I my first day finally as a full time person was actually the day Obama got elected. I remember like we were watching. I was like, wow, I got a whole new job and Obama's here and Bush is going away. This is so great. Everything's great. And over time, like I just I fell into like the hustle life culture. Like, oh, yeah, you just got to hustle, work hard, do all yeah. this stuff. And I I gave everything to that website and I thought it meant something. And as I found out, it didn't mean anything. And that every day reset your achievement clock like it it was heartbreaking definitely and then to find out that like oh why wait why is this website so shitty oh we have no power collectively as a group like that slowly came over time too so that by the time when me and bob we didn't work together until uh 2016 when we worked at this uh garbage site and when we worked there <laughs> we were broken like they shouldn't have hired us because we were yeah. done with believing the bullshit we're just like no come on why are we wasting time in this meeting or that's not what that means come on we know how much you pay for these yeah, things like we know how to make things you yeah. don't every time you could point out you knew how to make stuff it was just over so i mean yeah, I was a good, I was, I, a reason I love Michael and us is because I was one of those Michael Moore super fans in the 2000s. That was my politics. And so uh, just seeing it all fail over time and all, just feeling totally lied to, I was like, this sucks. Like, this just sucks. And, yeah. and, I, and I think the shitty pay too for time spent that radicalizes so many writers they're just you you learn the exploitation so firsthand it it turned you to the left for sure yeah and a lot of people ask us uh, or at least ask me like oh patreon you know uh, aren't you worried that's gonna you know crumble one day or aren't you worried about sustainability i had never felt more in a more precarious position than being in the games press like mm -hmm. rounds of layoffs in front of me every day felt like will this be my last day and like uh, nothing like that has ever happened on Patreon. Like every day, I'm like, I get to do whatever I want. I'm working very hard, of course, but there is no overhead guy who is just like, we don't need Bob Mackey anymore. Like, yeah. wh what's this guy doing here? He's 38. <laughs> get him out of here. Yeah. No. Yeah. <laughs> Where's a 22 year old we could slot in? The the terror of the every like four to six months layoffs that happened at my site of just like, yeah, it'll just happen. They'll close another magazine. Maybe you'll be next. Maybe maybe you'll you won't be next, and it'll be three of your best friends and you'll just feel awful every second of the day and have to then go to a meeting with the guy who just fired all your friends like who will then tell you you're not working hard enough and i would fire you if i could and i, I won't like that kind of shit it uh that uh, maybe that also causes kind of the schism that is we're all pushed to the left by this exploitation mm -hmm. then the audience is like well hey i don't want to hear about your shitty job like i just want to enjoy a the new zelda game please stop telling me about how bad your <laughs> job is like it i i could i could see that yeah, i get too. it yeah and sort of dangling over uh this kind of culture of grinding and constant layoffs that you guys are talking about is i suppose uh just the same lure all the time of well hey you're doing what you you love you get paid to work in gaming so you know why would you why would how could you possibly complain 
And really, in a way, wouldn't you pay for this privilege if you could? That yeah. is absolutely what I like. Literally, a boss said to me, "You're reviewing video games. It's supposed to be fun. Come on, it's uh, yeah. You never fun enough. You never heard that more than during the E3 conference. So, if your listeners don't know, that's a week long conference where a lot of people are sent there to work 12, 14 hour days to cover things. Like, isn't it so great that we're all here? We're we're on a team. We're crushing it as a team, guys. We're we're the family together doing it. And it's just like no. No, no, please stop. I just want to sit down. I want three meals a day. <laughs> I And I wish this work from home solitude existed when we had yeah. <laughs> jobs that were meaningless to be in an office for. We could have always done our games press jobs from home, but you had to be there so your micromanagers could be watching you every fucking second. Something that's just come to mind, which yeah. I wish I'd thought of earlier, was, uh, and it is only tangentially related to this discussion, uh, maybe we should do a whole other episode on it, but have you guys seen the, is it late 1980s film starring Fred Savage, no relation, uh, called The Wizard? Oh, yes. Yeah. In fact, I made a podcast about it. I saw them it. nodding their heads uh, <laughs> as you, just as you said the words Fred Savage. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. I did a podcast about it uh, like maybe in 2012, and that was the first time I had watched it ever. I watched that movie I, for some reason, many, many times as a kid, I don't know, it was, there was something about it being a movie, but also featuring Super Mario that I just thought was so cool. It's like, that's two things you never get to see together. And of course, I realize now that the entire uh, movie was just a sort of infomercial for <laughs> Nintendo. And I'm pretty sure that I think it's Super Mario 3 that they're playing at the end of the movie, you know, where uh, Lucas and Jimmy have their epic uh, face off or whatever. Yeah. And, and I don't think the game had come out yet. So that was like the first time anyone had seen it, I think. That's true. The point of that movie was to reveal Mario 3 to the world or to the non-Japan part of the world before there was like internet, basically. But when I watched that movie as a 30-year-old in 2012, I was like, I wouldn't have liked this as a kid because there's not enough video games. Like, it's maybe 5% video game content and then this like Hallmark movie surrounding it with bow bridges <laughs> the kids had never seen you know the whiz uh, the the whiz the uh, who the the who's tommy musical sorry tommy yeah. yeah so they didn't know that they the movie just rips that off anyway. yeah yeah well i think given everything that we've discussed which also by the way uh we should totally at some point uh do an episode on the wizard that would be so much fun <laughs> i'd love I'd to love revisit to. it you know as a as a big part of my own uh politicization and and subsequent radicalization but I think a, a good uh, way to send us all out, given uh, what we've talked about, is maybe you guys could talk about some of your side projects you do. I think people know you from the Talking Simpsons podcast, obviously, but both of you produce a lot of content. So why don't you tell us about that? Oh, yeah. So uh, Henry and I do a lot of stuff together and I can mention some of that, but I can just talk about the one thing I do. That's uh, mostly me. Henry's on a lot of it, too, but it's uh, Retronauts. That's a classic gaming podcast. I started on that. Uh, my my podcasting partner for Retronauts, Jeremy Parrish, he started it in 2006. And I joined the podcast in 2011. And now we are in our eighth year of doing it independently of the website that shut down uh, that where it started. And that's at uh, Retronauts.com. We've got a Patreon at Patreon.com slash Retronauts. But I think we have, if you count the ones we did at the website, maybe around six to 700 episodes so far about uh, different game topics, different games. But it's all like retrospectives of... Uh, games or genres or products and things like that yeah me and bob really came into our own as podcasters in the games press i i look back on it now as like 
oh, it was a podcast I really love, and that's why I wanted to uh, continue them with another fellow uh, podcaster. So yeah, we uh, when we were still at our last job, uh, we started up the Talking Simpsons podcast where we put our uh, giant knowledge of the Simpsons into practice in a in a podcast weekly about that, and then we made a second podcast, What a Cartoon, where we talk about it animated series each week in uh, the same uh hyper analytical style though i think we're still funny on top of yeah but again uh, things that we could never do working for a website they would never let us do it yeah i mean you'd have to be in like 18 meetings to hopefully get that and uh yeah i guess the you know there was one last thing i want to talk about too just that how a thing i really like now that i wish was there when i was in the games press was they are unionizing the workplaces a lot more the press is really like my my old employer future they now have their own well they uh, there's a union of workers there that is is working toward you know better uh stuff or at the very least when there's a giant layoff they get better deals thanks to that so it's that has been a really nice thing to see and it it makes me wish i was like man i wish i still was in the games press to join a union (laughs) but uh but i i don't miss the uh working every weekend kind of uh, thing (laughs) yeah well, I think that's a, a great place to end the discussion. Henry Gilbert, Bob Mackey, thanks so much for coming back on Michael and us and sharing your experiences. This was this was awesome. No problem. I yeah. love your podcast. Oh yeah, me too. Oh. <laughs> Cheers, guys.